So here we come back to the thought about the origins of marriage, the, the reason marriage exists in the first place. And we talked about marriage as defined by God and we looked closely at Genesis and we looked at some other verses to have an understanding of exactly what marriage is according to God. We gave a potent definition. It's a definition that's offered in scripture, but it is not popular uh, in the world. That marriage is considered a monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. We talked about the structure of that marriage. We talked about that marriage as an illustration, perfectly displayed to uh, be a living witness, a living testimony uh, of the illustration of God's love for you, of Christ's love for the church. And then that, that marriage would not only be structured and it would be a beautiful illustration, but then it would also be a permanent a fixture. That God's expectation is that when you get married, that you stay married. Uh, again, those are not necessarily uh, uh, popular things to say or popular opinions in this day and this hour. But again, we must hold near and dear to the word of God, not our opinion. But here's where I want to build off of. And here's the truth. If you did not get last week's message on marriage, then today is going to feel a little bit behind. So it's important that you go back after this message today, if you weren't here last week, and listen to the message online from last week. It will help you build your understanding about where we're going. Uh, but what I want to do is remind you of the illustration portion of what we talked about last week. Because I told you in Ephesians 5, that 32nd verse, we talked about the mystery being revealed, that in the Old Testament it was not yet revealed how the relationship between Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church, would really work. Uh, but now it had been revealed and that marriage is to be an illustration. Marriage is to be an illustration, the living depiction of Christ and his church and how he loves them. It's the unique symbol that takes your marriage in an earthly sense and elevates it for a divine purpose. Your marriage is not about your happiness. Your marriage is not about your contentment or your personal identity. At the end of the day, our marriages, as we found out last week, are about bringing glory to God and putting this illustration on display. Now, for the sake of time, I won't review any more of last week per se, but you must understand that the thought process of marriage as an illustration is vital for you to understand. If you don't understand that your marriage is supposed to be a live action drama, a, a, a display, an illustration of Christ's love for his church, then you can't understand why you are married in the first place. It's not about children. It's not about happiness. It's not about you feeling loved. At the end of the day, your marriage is to bring God glory and your marriage is to be an illustration. So I want us all on the same page that that marriage is an illustration. Husbands, understand this. This is very important. Understand, husbands, that the majority of the expectation, the majority of the pressure, and it's healthy pressure, the majority of this is applied to you. All the husbands in the building say amen. amen. Husbands, understand that this applies to you the most. Husbands have a responsibility placed on them. Husbands have uh, some true God-given pressure and direction 
that no other institution within Scripture has upon it. It is to be the high priest of the home who has that pressure on him, that spiritual expectation. Remember what Ephesians 5.25 said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But this week I want to take a deeper look at the heart of the husband. A deeper look at the heart of the husband. And specifically the illustration we have in scripture of the heart of Jesus for his bride as the bridegroom. The heart that Jesus has for his bride. So there are two groups of people. This is where you have to pay attention. Don't get lost in the bog here. There are two groups of people this applies to. Number one, obviously this will apply to husbands because we are talking specifically about the heart of the husband and looking to Jesus to define what the heart of the husband should look like and see the heart of the husband on display. But secondly, understand this, that this is also for anyone who is in the faith. This is for anyone who is saved. This is for anyone who is in the family of God. It does not matter your marital status in some elements, in some portions of this, because it relates to the heart of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, for his bride. So not only is this for husbands to pay attention to as an example, but secondly, this might be the best part. This is the love of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Bridegroom, the Kinsman Redeemer. This is a picture and an illustration and, and really more of a description of his love for you who are in the faith. This has corporate implications because it involves anyone who is in the faith, but it also has personal implications because he knows you personally. You know him as Lord, as Savior, and he knows you as part of his church, the bride. This is personal. And what I want to do this morning is to point to Jesus to point to his heart for you, to point to his love for you. And then husbands, we've got to take it all in. And we have to remember what Ephesians 5 says and, and really pay attention to what it says. It doesn't just say love your wife, but it says love your wife even as Christ also loved the church. And sometimes we focus on the portion of that verse that says and gave himself for it. But the hardest part in that verse is loving your wife. It's the action of love. It is the duty of love. It is the heart of love that is expected. And here's the part that we have to understand is that it's loved out every day. It's lived out every day. It's consistent. The problem with most American, and I'm going to be very, very careful, but the problem with most American males, husbands between the ages of 25 and 45 is that there is no consistency in the home as it pertains to loving the family as Christ loved the church. You can trace back all the problems and all the issues that you'll find in a New Testament Bible-believing church, and 90% of the time, you can follow that problem all the way back to a weak, inconsistent, unspiritual husband or father. God structured this thing for a reason. 
He gave it purpose. He gave it identity. And husbands, leaders of the home, high priests of the home, those that are to be the, the anchor point of the home, he put most of that on your shoulders. If you have a problem in your home, as my granddaddy taught me as a, as a young man, even as a teenager, before I was even married, he said, one, one day you'll get married, Winston, and there'll be problems at home. There'll be issues at home. And you'll look for somebody to blame. And if you want to find somebody to blame for the issues in your house, then go to the bathroom and look in the mirror and turn on all the lights so you can see clearly that it's on you. It's on you. Husbands, love your wife even as Christ loved the church is one of the strongest implications in all of Scripture for human beings. There is nothing more potent. There is nothing more powerful. There is not a more high and mighty designation for your life than for you to love your family, to love your wife as Christ loves his bride. And the problem is that we don't understand exactly what Jesus expects of us. We don't, ex we don't really understand exactly how much Jesus loves us. If you don't understand God's love for you, Christ's love for you, then you'll never be able to love your family appropriately. How are you to display the love that you know nothing about? How are you to live out the expectation of the home if you don't have a clear picture of who Jesus Christ is for the church? Go to John 17 and you'll now see clearly his love for the church. Now, there's quite a few verses here, and I tried my best to figure out a way to read a few here and a few there. But I think it's so important today because, as you will see, 99% of this chapter, if you have a red-letter edition, is in red. These are the words of Jesus. So read along with me. It'll be on your screen if you don't have your Bible in lap. But let's read all 26 verses here and take in what's happening, okay? Then we'll, we'll give it an explanation of exactly what we're reading after we read, okay? Okay. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou hast gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou didst givest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, 
and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the word hath hated them. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they may also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also might be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they might be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and hast, thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou givest me, be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Let the church say, Amen. What you have just read is the prayer that Jesus prayed before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the prayer right before his crushing, right before his arrest, his betrayal, and all that ensues his crucifixion. This is his communication with the Father. And you'll read in Scripture, Matthew 6 and Luke 11, and those popularly are known as the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer that you'll find in Matthew 6 and in Luke 2 is more of a pattern for our prayers. The prayer here recorded in John 17 is a true face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus Christ the Son speaking and praying directly to the Father. And what you are witnessing is the transition in the life and in the ministry of Jesus going from his earthly ministry now to become more of an intercessor. 
This is the transition from his earthly ministry to his ministry of intercession. Remember, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to raise again in power and authority. And then he will ascend to heaven. The comforter will come. But this is the transition where the, the earthly ministry is finishing. That door is closing. And now the other doors are opening. This is part of the transition, not only of his ministry, but of redemptive history. Everything is getting ready to change. Everything is getting ready to open up for you and for me to have hope and to do it in a different way than it's ever been done. That the final sacrifice, the perfect lamb would die on the cross. And so this is him going from a, a different place, a different direction to directly speaking to the father and wrapping up everything that he's done. You can take these 26 verses in John 17 and what you can find is a summarization of the entire gospel of John. This is everything that Jesus did. This is everything that Jesus was. And now everything is getting ready to change. And these verses are divided. His prayer is divided into three parts. And I want to give you this content because it's so important that you understand what's being said. And then we'll switch back into gear looking and scouring scripture for the heart of the bridegroom. But look at the three designations. It's divided into three parts. The first part is Jesus' prayer for himself. That's verse 1 through verse 5. He's giving honor and glory to the Father. He's affirming the glory of the cross. He's expressing the very essence of eternal life. So 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. The second uh, designation, the second uh, portion is Jesus' prayer for his apostles, the disciples. He prays specifically for these men. And that's verse 6 through 19. And then lastly, you'll see that Jesus prays for all of the New Testament believers, all of those that will come. That's you, that's me, that's the church. But the good news is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the, the first two designations there obviously have some real meaning for particular and uh, a purpose. Jesus' communications with the Father, obviously his prayer for himself still blesses me all the way down to my socks. Hearing the, hearing the Christ speak to the Father about eternal life and purpose and glory blesses my heart. But understand that even the prayer that he prays for the disciples and then obviously the third portion of this prayer, it applies to the bride. It applies to the bride. If you're saved, if you're born again, if you're on your way to heaven, then what you have to instantly realize is that this prayer that Jesus prayed before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took a minute out of his time, God divinely had it recorded in scripture, and Jesus took a few minutes before he went to Gethsemane to pray for you. This is evidence, this is proof that Jesus prayed for you by name. It was written in his heart. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew who you would be. He knew what you would look like. He knew everything about you. And he took a moment to thank God the Father specifically for you. If you ever feel like nobody's praying for you, you can take your Bible, turn 
turn to John 17 and read what Jesus Christ himself prayed for you. And so what you have here is a transitional chapter, a transitional prayer where Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry is now stepping into the role as intercessor, as the great high priest who is the head of the church and as the bridegroom who he's getting ready to go to Calvary and pay for. Praise God, he took a minute to remind us of why he was going to the cross in the first place. It was all about you and your future. All about you and your hope. All about you and your eternal life. And praise God, he prayed for you before he went to the cross. And so in this, he pours out his heart. There's so much here. You could spend months tearing these verses apart, going back to the Old Testament and looking and seeing Jesus perfectly described for us in Old Testament. All the Christophanies that point to the cross that were thousands of years before he even praised this. But as he prays for his disciples, he prays specifically for a few things. I know we don't have time to go over all of this, but let me give you the essence of what Jesus is praying for you. Say this with me. I want you to understand. Say this with me. Jesus prayed for me. Yes, say it again. Jesus prayed for me. What did he pray for for you? Well, look. Look in Scripture. In verse 6 through 9, he prayed for your knowledge. He wanted you to know. The Bible calls you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. In verse 10 and 12, he prayed for your perseverance. He knew that there would be hard days. He knew there would be tough days. He knew there would be days that would cause you to feel weary and fatigued. And Jesus Christ himself opened up his mouth speaking to the Father and prayed for your perseverance. Verse number 13, he prayed for your joy. Real joy, joy that comes only from knowing him. He wanted you not only to persevere, but he wanted you to be happy on the way to heaven. Does it mean that it's going to be perfect? No. Does it mean that there won't be any hard days? No. But he prayed that in him you might find joy. In verse 14 through 17, we'll come back to this. He prayed for your sanctification. In verse number 18 and 19, he puts you on a mission He reminded you of the great commission that he had not even spoke of yet. But it was coming later that he would send you to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost part to teach them and preach, baptizing them in the name of the Jesus. He he wanted you to remember that there's a job to do. There's a job to do. There's a goal to achieve. There are fields that need to be harvested. There are people who are waiting for you to step up to the plate and carry on the mission, the good news. And then in verse number 20 through 22, he prayed for oneness. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. Let me take a second and just give you what God did for my heart through this. I have had a hard time. You may think I'm, I'm kidding or being jovial. I've had a hard time. I like having access. I like being in the seat. I want to be where the heat is. I, I want to know what's happening. I want to be in the action. I want to be there. I want to know firsthand. It's just who I am. And sometimes I would read in Luke 9, the transfiguration of Jesus, and I would get plumb right jealous of, of James and of Peter and of John who got to go to the transfiguration. You say, that's silly. You've never been jealous of a Bible character. I promise you I have. Lord, why couldn't I have been born then? 
Why, why didn't I get to break bread with your physical body here on earth? Why couldn't I have been a part of that? And Jesus, as he's speaking to the Father, what he's doing is he's linking those that have seen his physical body those who have gone to dinner with him, those that have washed him in oil, those that would take his dead body off the cross and put him in a barred tomb, those that were raised from the dead like Lazarus and Bethany, those who knew him, those who prayed for him, those who loved him on an earthly sense. He linked them, his disciples, those that could have even heard this prayer prayed, and then he mentioned those that were to come, the church, the bride, and what he's praying is for the oneness in the body. Here's the good news that you have to understand. There is no difference in your relationship with Jesus than Peter has with Jesus. There's no difference in your relationship with Jesus than Moses experiences with God. There's no difference in the relationship that Zacchaeus in the tree had than he has with you. It's all all part of the bride. There is no special designation. There are not those, those that have a, a VIP status with God. He said, I want them all to be one. Put them in one basket and call them the bride. He loves you. Just as he loved Peter, he loves you. Just as he loved John, the beloved, he loves you. And he wants you to be part of that same group. There are no special designations. There are no special Christians with VIP access. We all have access because he was getting ready to go to the cross. And from the cross, the ground was level. The veil was getting ready to rent. No longer would it just be the high priest that would have access. Everybody in the family can come. Everybody in the family can sit at the table. Everybody in the family has access to the Father. Praise God. He wanted you and he loves you. He prayed for the oneness of the body. Then he prayed in verse 23 for perfect unity. Perfect unity. I in them and thou in me that they might be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Praise the Lord. And then verse 24, 25, he talked about your presence with him. Father, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. Father, I'm getting ready to become their sin. And Lord, we've had this worked out before time began. But just as a reminder to them, because we all know that this will be canonized, talking to the Trinity, we all know that they'll read this. Think of that. He knows that it's being recorded. He knows it's being put into Scripture. He knows it's going to be canonized. And in intentionality, the Savior speaks and wants to remind you in his prayer for you that this is part of the benefits package that eventually, whether he come again or whether you die in the faith, that you would be with him in his presence, the future presence with God. And he prays, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Jesus told the Father, I want them. I want them. I want them. I want them to be with me. I want them to experience my glory. I want them to see you for who you are. Let's remind him in this prayer and let's thank God the Father for what he's done because the accomplishment that's getting ready to happen on the cross will secure them forever to be in my presence. 
Let the church say amen. His future presence with God. And he prayed for you. And lastly, in verse 26, he prayed for our mutual love, that we would love each other. So here it is. The prayer of the high priest. The prayer of the great intercessor. The prayer, listen now. The prayer that the betrothed prayed for his fiancée before they got married. This is the prayer of the betrothed that prays for his to be married to before their wedding ceremony. This is Jesus Christ, if you will, as the fiance who is getting ready to go to the wedding and pay the dowry, pay the price, so that the husband and wife could become as one. This is the prayer he's praying before he has the rights to the bride. Because he's getting ready to go pay the price for them. Our Lord Jesus is transitioning into this new role. The components that you just read here. The love, the unity, the oneness, the sanctification, the joy, the knowledge, the perseverance. This is what was on his heart for you before he went to the cross. And if you'll pay attention closely to all that he gave, all that he prayed, if you'll put that list together, if you'll take this apart, this chapter, and really study out what Jesus was praying for you, then what you will find is that Jesus prayed for you. He prayed out everything you could possibly need for this life. He's already qualified it by talking and praying about eternal life, which is getting ready to be accomplished on the cross. But then he prays things that are specific for you as a believer in this life. And everything that you need, everything that you could possibly need, knowledge, perseverance, joy, sanctification, being mission-minded, the oneness, the unity, the future presence with him, our eternal life, and then that we would love each other. This is everything you need that he prayed in one prayer. In 26 verses, Jesus is able to summarize everything it took John multiple chapters to say. And he just perfectly prays everything that you need. And as a member of the bride of Christ, and as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a co-laborer, no matter who you are, no matter your role in the body, no matter your position in the body, no matter your responsibility, no matter what the situation is, it can all be traced back to this, his prayer for you. Say it again with me. Jesus prayed for me. Jesus prayed for me. And these things that he prayed for you is exactly what you need. Now, husbands, this is where it starts to come back on us. The key to unlocking every bit of this entire chapter, if you don't listen to anything else I say, do yourself a favor and understand what I'm getting ready to say. The key to unlocking every bit of this, the perseverance, the joy, the oneness, the unity, every bit of this is unlocked from verse 14 to verse 17. That's the key. It's in the middle. It's in verse number 14 through 17. I have given them thy word. 
And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. In verse 17, here it is. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's all about your sanctification. It's all about your sanctification. Understand this, sanctification is a personal process. I cannot be, listen very carefully to what I'm saying. Do not get confused in this. I cannot be sanctified for me and my wife and my children and my family. That's not what this is saying. That's not what we're teaching. Sanctification is personal because sanctification is a part of your salvation. At salvation, you are forgiven. At salvation, you are justified. At salvation, you are declared righteous and you are sanctified. But understand this, all of that is in one motion and in one moment. A perfect work of salvation, a complete work of salvation. Let the church say amen to that perfect work of salvation. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. It's not a progressional salvation. It happens in one moment. Either you are saved or you are not. But the part that you have to continue in is the process of sanctification. It does not stop the day you got saved. It is a continual desire. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It's a push towards sanctification. Uh, Sanctification, bestly put, is this. It, It is a separation between you and evil. A separation between you and the flesh. A separation between you and sin. And Jesus is saying, sanctify them, separate them from sin. Through thy word, thy word is truth. And husbands, here's where we can find the heart of the husband. Here's where we can find the heart of the bridegroom for the bride. Is to be the leader of the home Understanding that your sanctification, listen to me now, your separation from sin, your growth in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has a lot to do with where your home is headed and the status of the home as it's lived in. Sanctification is a continual process of you learning, of you growing in grace and knowledge. It's genuine, it's progressive, it's a disconnect from sin, from flesh. And it all pushes you and your family towards righteousness. This is God's will for our church family. And it is his will for your family with a father at the helm, the spiritual high priest of the home, who is leading and guiding his home away from evil. I hope you're listening. Away from evil towards righteousness. Away from evil towards righteousness. And at the end of the day, it's not mom's decision. It's not mom's responsibility. It's dad's responsibility. It's the husband's responsibility to be the one who leads the way in sanctification and in righteousness. J.I. Packer, he was a wonderful theologian, a man of God. He said this about sanctification. He said, sanctification has a double aspect. 
He said its positive side is vivification. And vivification means to be brought to life. It's alive, it's living, it's breathing. So he says on the positive side, sanctification is vivification, the growing and the maturing of the new man. And its negative side is mortification and the weakening and the killing of the old man. It's, there's two parts to this. It's split perfectly in half. It's the feeding of the new man and it's the continual process of death of the old man. Here's a, a good old Western North Carolina mountain way of saying it. It's, it's like taking the old man out behind the barn and shooting it every single day. Every single day. The old man, the flesh, the desire, the, the will, my knowledge. This is where pride gets eviscerated. This is where your control, your hands on the wheel, just sort of, it's taken off. This is where leaning into your own understanding stops, where John 3.30 is lived and processed, and it leads you and with it your family towards righteousness, towards God, away from sin, away from evil, and away from wickedness. The problem in 2023, the problem in the living church of Jesus Christ is we are plagued, we are absolutely diseased to the core with weak men who have no spiritual aptitude and no aptitude to appetite for righteousness and they are no longer leading their families towards righteousness but they are leading their families into whatever the flesh wants and we are paying the price we need good godly strong backboned men to lead their families so that we can have a church that please God and the only way you lead your family is to be sanctified separated from sin Leading your family towards righteousness. For any of that to be achieved, for any of that to become a reality, it has to operate at the very top. It's on you, daddy. It's on you, husband. Well, my children are, are, are grown. They're adults. It's just me and my wife here at home. And we've been married a long time. And you're talking about changing things and me taking on a different role. And we're set. Leave us alone. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the heart of the husband is to pray for his wife. This is the prayer of the bridegroom for the bride. And his prayer was, Father, keep them from evil. Keep them from the world and lead them towards righteousness away from evil, sin, and wickedness. Here's the truth. Your spiritual walk, your spiritual responsibility as a husband, as a father, as a leader, and remember this applies to all Christians, is never to be stagnant. It's never to stop. It's, it's never an achieved position or goal. Well, I've been married a long time and I got this thing figured out. Spiritually speaking, dear sir, that is not true. Grow in the grace and the knowledge. Ask God to take you to a deeper level. It could be that there's a young man. It could be that there's a young person who is watching you and who is waiting for you to take the next step. You say, prove to me this next step idea that I'm to keep growing and keep going. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a great place. But we all, all means all, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. He's talking about being changed 
and transformed, but going from glory to glory. It's a continual, progressive transformation. If you're happy with where you are with God, then you're not right with God. There has to be a continual, constant warring with the flesh. There has to be a desire to go deeper for more knowledge, more wisdom, more understanding. And it has to surpass anything that this world has to offer. Every day I think of the incredible family that God's given me, the men in my life that have led me and prayed for me and loved me. I have a wonderful father who loves the Lord. And he's done his very best to teach his son to hate sin, to hate that which God hates, and love that which God loves. Think of my grandfather today. He's been a testament and witness to us all of always wanting more, going towards righteousness, going towards what's right, and leaving the things of the world behind. And then of our founding pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton Sr., who, who lived in this little house right here next door and in that bedroom in his last days, up in his upper 80s with a brain tumor dying, holding the word of God as best as he could, glasses down, just a few hours from heaven, and he'd read as much as he could and he'd turn the page. And he'd, he'd get blurred vision from the brain tumor and he'd reset He'd open his eyes again and he'd start reading again like it was the first time anyone had ever handed him a New Testament that said, Jesus loves me. And I can remember my granddaddy asking him the story being told, Pop, why are you still reading scripture? Won't you rest? Won't you lay down? And Poppy's desire was, I want to know more about him. I'm getting ready to go see him. And I want to know what his word says so that I can be prepared to meet my Savior face to face, going from glory to glory, step by step, decade by decade. And if we do not have men who are desperate for their families, desperate for their wives to that level, then we are doomed spiritually there has to be a hunger there has to be a desire and there has to be spiritual leadership in the home going from glory to glory because the truth is dad the truth is husband if you'll gaze into the glory and allow the spirit of God to change you it might just be that it will change your family and if enough families will start gazing into the glory and changing and going closer to righteousness further away from the world further away from sin then it will change our church the heart of the husband. So how do I do this, pastor? How do I do this? How do I go from glory to glory? How do I know exactly what God wants for me and my family? And believer, how do you unlock the knowledge, the perseverance, the joy, the sanctification, the mission-mindedness, the oneness, the perfect unity? How do all those things get applied? He told you. Pay attention closely to what he said. Go back to John 17. We'll finish with this. There's a few key elements here. Verse number 8 says, For I have given unto them the words which thou hast gavest me. Verse number 14 says, I have given them thy word. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What's the word I'm saying there a lot? Word. Thy word, thy word, thy word. Where do you in 2023 as a believer find the words of God? 
Where do you find direction? Where do you find inspiration? Where do you find a cool drink of water on a hot day? Spiritually speaking, it is the word of God. Until the church believes the word, until the church embraces the word, until the family embraces the word, and until the husband, the father, changes his marriage and his home forever and embraces the word, nothing will ever change. You want peace in your house? Go to the word. You want to stop fighting with your wife? Then understand your role and go to the word. You want to feel satisfied in your marriage? Then learn to be satisfied with the word of God. If we want our families to change, men, all the men say amen. But say it like you mean it. Say amen, men. Amen. If we want our families to change, we have to change. If we want our wives to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, listen to me, you can't be a spiritual hermit and go sit in your study and study the word of God for seven hours and come out and be on some sort of mountaintop and leave her down in the valley of the shadow of death. It don't work like that. I'm not talking about some sort of spiritual authority that has a, a crowbar in its hand. It's a leadership. You lead by taking her by the hand and saying, let's go together. And if she's in the valley of the shadow of death and you grab her hand and you stay right there with her and you beg God and plead God and lead her out by her hand and allow it to change your family, your relationship and your marriage. And as husbands, we must be absolutely sold out to this every day of our lives. Wives, Remember your responsibility, your role, what was designed in the structure of the marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. That you're to submit to the husband. That you're to obey. That this is the will of God for your life. But men, what kind of husband are they having to obey? What kind of leader do they have at home? And, and husbands, do we reflect truly God has, has really taken me personally to the woodshed a couple times on this stuff? Do we really understand what it means to have the perfect, precious treasure, our wives, that we have? Do we really understand what it means to lead them and to love them? And my challenge is that I don't think we can love them, and I don't think we can lead them until we understand the heart of the bridegroom for the bride in John 17. I'm praying three things this week. Number one, God inspect me and show me how I can change as a husband, as a Christian, and as a pastor. Secondly, I'm asking him to help me focus on what really matters. And then thirdly, I'm asking God to give me more godly influence with my wife for his glory. When Miranda looks at her husband, I want her to see a man that she can trust, not because of what he knows, not because of how many followers he has on social media, my God, not because of how much money he has in a bank account, but how much he loves Jesus and illustrates to the world and to her privately, even at home, that he loves her just as Jesus Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, to the best of our ability, we've tried to share what you've put in our hearts. 
Lord, to understand your kingdom, to understand your structure, your desire for our lives and for, God, the purpose of marriage. Lord, I pray that today you would inspect us. Lord, I pray for the men that are here. Lord, the men that should be here. Lord, I pray that you would begin a process of renewal. God, that you would renew our minds, give us fresh oil. God, give us a desire like never before to live for you. God, I pray for a spirit of authority and leadership to rise up in our men. God, that their hearts would be purified. Their hands would be clean. Their minds would be kept captive to Christ and everything that they say and do. And Lord, that you would allow them the grace and the mercy to lead their homes. Lord, we pray for a spirit of tender, tender love and submission. God, us to you above all. Lord, use your word to change us. Use your word to mold us and to shape us. It's in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking. As always, the altar's open if you need to come and pray. But is there a husband here today? A husband, a father, under the sound of my voice. Say, Pastor, to the best of my ability, I want to embrace the heart of the bridegroom for the bride. I want to love my wife. I want to love my children a little deeper, a little better. I want to do it with the help of the Lord. Is there anyone here in the sound of my voice that's you this morning? Would you just be man enough to raise your hand? God bless you, men. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for listening. God bless you. God bless you. Are there any Christians here today that say, Pastor, I want to understand just how much Jesus really loves me. I need to be reminded of how much he cares. Would you pray for my heart? I need some encouragement from the word. Would you just raise your hand? I want to know how to pray for you. God bless you. Thank you for being honest. God bless you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, he's dealing with your heart. I wouldn't leave before you get right. Now, Father, you see the hands, you know the hearts. Encourage us, grow us, mold us and shape us. Encourage the ones that are dealing with a tough situation, a hard place. Or we pray, pray again for every marriage of our church. Or we pray that divorce would never befall another family of our congregation. Keep us right. Keep us pure. Keep us desperate and hungry for your word. In Jesus' name, the church pray. Amen.